You are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. I also I I love New Zealand. God, the trout fishing there. There's a trout stream in in New Zealand called the Rangatiki. The rainbows average twelve pounds. They look like big steelhead. And we used dry flies for them, little royal coachman, and we were 14. And one day I was on the on the Rangatiki with the guide, and I said, Kenny, I said, look at this. I, said, I just saw these two big nine-pound rainbows lying next to a big black log. I said, these rainbows got to be 10 pounds. He said, Lonnie, look again. That's not a log. That's a 25-pound brown trout, and no one's ever hooked them. I said, well, kiss my butt. I'm going back up there with that brown. So I went back where the brown was. My hands were shaking. I was so scared. I didn't even change the fly. So here I am casting a number 14 royal wolf to this 20-pound brown trout. He sees it. Boom, it lands on the water. I can see that big jaw, those big eyes look up, and here he comes. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Here comes the royal wolf, and at the last minute, he stops and drops back down, turns around and swims right by me. And as he looks at me, I swear to God, he was saying, kiss my butt, buddy. And he, I never saw him again. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Well, welcome to the podcast, folks. We're truly grateful to welcome Lonnie Waller to the program. Now, Lonnie is basically a steelhead guru. He's been doing this. He's been at this game a long time. Author, fly fisher, traveler. Uh, he was inducted into the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame in 1997. Sole survivor of a plane crash that took the lives of two friends and a pilot. Lonnie will tell us all about that. A very candid conversation and really grateful that he took the time today. We started chatting with Lonnie about how he came to discover fly fishing. I used to accompany my father when he went on hunting trips. And, you know, I was too little to shoot a gun then. And so when the, my dad and his buddies were out with their rifles, I took my fishing rod and started fishing in the little creeks you know, in Northern California. Mm -hmm. And uh, that continued for, oh, I don't know, until I was, I guess, in my early 20s. And then I went north from the Bay Area and to a college named Chico State. And there was, Chico State was was in the mountains. It was the, the uh, you know, it wasn't the high Sierras, but it was, they had lakes with trout and creeks with trout, and even the, even the uh, college I was going to had a little creek, and salmon would come into that creek, and I would go down and watch them as I was walking to class. 
I'd sit on the bridge overlooking Chico Creek and watch the salmon. Hmm. So that, that's, where, that's where your passion for, uh, for everything kind of steelhead, salmon, salmonids in general started? Yeah, I was, I was really fascinated with the fact that you know, a fish, in, in the terms of uh, steelhead, were little bitty rainbows, and they would leave the river of their birth, journey down out of the ocean, stay there for two or three years, and then come back into the river of their birth. I thought that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I chased those fish around Chico in the mountains up there, and then I then I got involved with uh, some well-known uh, fly fishermen, a guy named Andre Pouillons and David Inks, and I formed a partnership with them, and I opened up a fly shop. Okay. A fishing shop. Where was that at? And then, Lonnie, where was that? Oh, that was in the that was in the in the Bay Area. Okay. Uh, San Rafael. So what that would did, I had this fly shop, and it was a great opportunity to meet clients who wanted to go on fishing trips to faraway destinations. And boy, I just, I went for it. <laughs> and you know, I went. Let me see. Where did that? God, I went. Every, I went. I went to Alaska a lot, fished around Katmai National Monument, you know. Uh, I fished there many, many years in, in Katmai National Monument, the Brooks River, you know. And uh, then uh, I got interested in uh, those little baby steelhead I saw in college, and I read a book, a very influential book by Joe Brooks. I can't remember the name of the book. Brooks showed Brooks holding up a sea run brown trout, like 20 pounds. And he caught it on a popper, a popping bug. And man, that blew my lid off, you know. Absolutely. That's a whole, whole other passion. Yes, it was. So then by that time I was, I was addicted to sea run fish, brown trout or, or rainbows, a steelhead. And I can't remember what year it was that I, first went to Silver Hilton Steelhead Lodge and it was owned by a guy named Bob Wickwire. Okay. Okay. And this is when things really opened up for me. Wickwire was a good old country boy who and a great steelheader and he knew a lot about that, but he didn't know about marketing his lodge. He didn't know who to market to. And I said, Bob the future of your lodge on the Babine River is not with the guys that come up and fish with roe and, and spinners and spoons. Your future lies with the fly fishermen of the world. And I'm the guy that can do it. And if you let me take over your reservation system and let me market your lodge to my clients, you're going to be, you're gonna, well, you're not going to be rich before you know it, but you're going to be doing pretty good. And he said, okay, let's do it. And that's how it all got started. Rick Wire and I worked together for many, many years. I don't know how many, many is, uh, <laughs> you know, 20 or so. And uh, then there was one year, and I don't know if you want to put this in there or not, but it's, it's, it was an important part of my life. One year on the flying into Silver Hilton Lodge, the pilot 
was going to, they had a landing strip at Silver Hilton for these small little planes to land on. Well, the pilot overshot the runway. Oh, crap. And he went up and, and up above, he overshot the rain, overshot the runway. Now he's over the river and he's going to crash in, into the side of a big mountain there. So it makes an abrupt turn to the left. I'll never forget. And Brett turned to the left and he lost his, you know, airplanes have a lift. He lost his lift and the plane all of a sudden just turned right straight, nose down, and we crashed into the Babine. Wow. I was knocked unconscious and it was several minutes before I awakened. And when I did, the plane was flooding with water. And there was blood in the in the water everywhere. The whole the water inside the plane was just red with blood. And I looked for the guy sitting next to me, and he was crunched and and underneath the front seat. Hmm. He was cold. He was dead. Then I reached forward for my buddy in the, in the cockpit of the plane. He too was dead. His his neck was just as ice, as cold as ice. And then the pilot, he was dead. So I thought. Okay, now what in the f- do I do? Yeah. So I climbed through. The plane was all torn up, and I crawled through the fuselage of the small plane, and I dog paddled over to the shore of the Babine River, and I collapsed there. Hmm. And then, and I don't know if you know this, what this sounds like to you, but it's true. The truth. I had what's called a near-death experience. Wow. They're, they're, they've had them all, all over the world. I had a near-death experience, and I left my body. Hmm. Tell me if I'm getting no. too far. Hey, no, Mark. Okay. I'm willing to go as far as you want to take it. Okay, well, let's go all the way with it. So I crawled out of the plane, blood everywhere. I was spitting my teeth out. My face was crushed, and I collapsed on the shore. And then all of a sudden, I was dying. I knew I was dying. And I heard a presence came to me. I don't know what it was. It was God or I don't know, the angels or what it was. And I asked it what had just happened. And this voice uh, said, you're, you're dying. And you've left your body. And you have to make a choice. Hmm. I'll, I'll never forget this. I said, what's my choice? Because I didn't even know what this voice, who or what this voice was. The voice said, you've got two choices. You can either continue your death and die and cross over the line between life and death, or you can get back inside your body and swim over, the, get back inside your body and lie down and get your heart beating again, and the lodge will come and get you. So, so I didn't know what to do. I thought, well, you know, I'm in love with the woman of my life, love of my life, Judy, and I, I God damn it, <laughs> God damn it, God, I don't want to die. <laughs> so, I, so I just laid there, just hanging on, spitting my two teeth out. There was blood everywhere. My right eye was ruptured. I had steel plates later on in my cheek. Anyway, they found me there, laying in the garage. Jerry Lou Rickwire was her name. Jerry Lou, and they got me. They used a. They didn't have any stretchers there. Who needs stretchers at a lodge? So they put me 
on a door. Somebody took a door off one of the lodge cabins and they laid me on that door and they carried me up into the lodge and put me on the kitchen table. And this is where I got really lucky. I didn't know it, but I had a heart specialist, a client of mine, I didn't know it, was named Tam, T-E-M, King, K-I-N-G. Mm-hmm. He was a, he was a specialist, and he said, Lonnie's face is crushed, his heart stopped beating, and I'm going to have to start artificial, what, I don't know what they call it, it's, resuscitation sure. or something, CPR. to get his heart going again. Yeah. So he started pounding on my chest, and all of a sudden, there was a flash of light, I was back inside my body, and I wasn't on the river anymore, obviously. I was lying on the dining room table of the lodge. Hmm. And I wakened up, and he said, okay, his name, as I said, his name was Tim King. He said, you're gonna, I think you're going to be all right, Lonnie, but you have to keep breathing. You know, you're, you're a mess. Your face has been crushed. You're bleeding. You're, you know, your eyes half ripped out of its socket. And you, you've got to, you've got to do this. You have to hang on to this. I said, okay, Tim, I will. God damn it, <laughs> I'm not ready to die, baby. It ain't my time. So I laid there and laid there, and he worked on me, gave me artificial, you know, resuscitation and stuff. But then they put blankets on me to keep me warm because I was just shivering. And then the lodge owner gets on the telephone. And she calls in to the shuttle service that brings people in and out of Silver Hilton. Mm-hmm. They said, and the guy's name, I'll never forget, it was Tom Brooks, helicopter pilot. She said, Tom, we have a problem. There's been an airplane crash. There are three clients dead in the river, and we have Lonnie Waller on the dining room table, and he's going to die if we don't get him into town. So he hopped on the helicopter, hopped on the helicopter, they came out, put me on a stretcher, and flew me into Smithers. And there I was in an intensive care unit. And I could watch my, they put me on an EKG, you know, for your heart. Yeah. And I could watch it going blip, 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 blip. You know, it registers your heartbeat, you know. And all of a sudden, it would stop, and they, it would go, my heart would go flat. They call it flatline. Right. There would be no. I was flatlining, and the, and the nurse would say, Lonnie, Lonnie. I said, don't worry, baby. I, said, <laughs> I can fix this. And I told my heart, God damn it. <laughs> you start beating again. I don't want to die. I got a wife I want to go back to, and I don't want to die here in intensive care in Smithers, British Columbia. Wow. And boy, all of a sudden, my heart would start beating again. And that went on for most of the night. My heart would stop. I'd tell it to start beating. My heart would stop. I'd tell it to start beating. And finally, it calmed down. And uh, when the nurses saw me, they said, my God, they thought my body was black as, as, as ink. And they said, my God, what happened to you? Were you in a fire? I said, no, there was no fire. And they said, my God, this is, I think they call them hematomes. I don't know what yeah. they call them. Sure. You're black. Yeah. You're as black as a black crayon. So I stayed that way. And then Bob Wickwire came in as soon as I was awake. And uh, he he was crying, didn't know what in the hell to do. No one did. But I just hung on. I think I was in Smithers for four or five days 
and then I was well enough to put into a, a, a an air vac, I think they call it. They put me in a small. My wife came up, sat with me in the plane, and they flew me back to California, where they started the surgery. So my face was crushed. So they had to make made me new cheekbones out of titanium. Each cheekbone that I've got still got it. Hmm. They're they're fake. They're titanium. <laughs> I have an artifi- I have an artificial lens in my right eye. Right. You know. So, and I just I said, well, that's it. I'm gonna I'm not gonna die. And if I got an artificial lens and artificial cheekbones and two screws in my head, I don't give a damn. <laughs> I'm alive, baby. <laughs> Well, that you know what that is an amazing story, and I uh, it was it was fascinating to me to hear it. I mean, I'm I'm so sorry you lost. I know you lost a couple of good friends in that, and obviously yeah. a pilot. But that's a true that is a true survival story, and uh, it's never give up. I, I actually find Lonnie, I find uh, near death experiences very fascinating. I've heard a few stories along the lines uh-huh. of what you just said, and they all seem to have a lot of commonalities. Yeah, well, you know, I've got a copy of my near-death experience that I gave to the Unitarian Church down here in San Miguel, and I think I've still got it. If I do, I can say, I can email it to you. Yeah, I, I, I'm very interested in that. So, hey, yeah, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us tonight. We're chatting with Lonnie Waller, steelhead expert. He's uh, based out of San Miguel de la... I hope I say this right. San Miguel de la Lende? Yeah, De Allende. Yeah, de Allende. Uh, Lonnie is author, fly fisher, traveled all over the globe uh, with a fly rod, inducted into the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame in 97, has uh, lots of books and DVDs on steelhead, primarily steelhead. Lonnie, would you say that steelhead is your, is your passion? Yes, it is my number one passion, steelhead, especially the, the wild steelhead, up in the Skeena River system. They're just incredible fish. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Skeena has some of the biggest steelhead in the world. They, In the old days, I don't know about it anymore, but in the old days, the steelhead on the Babine River averaged 15 pounds. Wow. And they would go, you know, I've caught two fish in the 30-pound class. I have those mounted up at the lodge. So that was a great passion of mine, mm-hmm. those, big, those big Skeena steelhead. Let's talk about... I'd really like to get to know you a little bit. Can I ask you a few random rapid-fire questions that may or may not have anything to do with fishing? Fire away. All right. Are you a music guy? If you're on your way to the river, is there something you like to listen to if you're driving in your truck? No. No? No. It's quiet? No. Just, yeah, well, I don't drive anymore. I don't have a car. So if I go to a fishing somewhere, it's always by an airplane charter. There you go. And no, no issues at all getting on in, in a plane since since that that accident. No, it took me a while to get used to it again. Yeah, I you know, know, flying in airplanes, and uh, in order at Silver Hilton Steelhead Lodge, in order to make me feel better and to make the other clients feel better, because everybody heard about my crash, we started using helicopters, and I learned this about helicopters from a great helicopter pilot there named Tom Brooks. You can get a helicopter, and you can fly in a straight line, and then if you come to a dead end, like a canyon or something, the helicopter can just stop, hover there, turn around, and come right straight back out. Mm. A small airplane cannot do that. Right. Makes sense. 
one fly pattern that you cannot live without? If you had to pick one, Lonnie. I would choose a silver Hilton. Okay. Named after, I named that, the, the lodge after that fly. <laughs> there was a silver Hilton fly. It's an old fly. It was developed, uh, I believe, on the northern rivers of, of northern California. I don't know who... who right. I think there was a guy who lived in New Orleans, and he also made a fly called the Orleans Barber. But he was the guy, this guy, I think he was a... I don't know what he was, a doctor or a dentist or what he did. But he he made it, he invented the Silver Hilton and a lot of other flies. So I then when it came time to name the lodge, I said, well, let's name it after this fly that I just love. It's called the Silver Hilton Steelhead Lodge. They said, okay. Well, then Hilton Lodge, you know, the Hilton Lodge is a famous uh, group of the Hiltons are famous hotels all over the world. Sure. So I get a call from the, I don't know, the CEO of the Hilton Hotel. He said, what in the hell is this going on? Naming, naming a fly after the Hilton Hotels. I said, wait a minute. I said, don't be so nervous. I said, everything's all right. This is just a little fishing lodge. You know, we take 60 or 70 people a year at the Silver Hilton, and that's all we're doing with it. The guy says, okay, that sounds good to us, and he hung up. <laughs> <laughs> Lonnie, so you know, you got to be able to, in order to be a fisherman, you have to learn how to bullshit a little bit, you know. <laughs> but it was the truth. I told him the truth. I love it. One place you go to talk fly fishing. So when you're not on the water, whether you're in Mexico, whether you're in, in, in California or British Columbia or Alaska, is there a, a spot, Lonnie, you like to go to talk fishing, like a fly shop, a coffee shop, a favorite watering hole? Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, I used to be, I used to go all over the world lecturing and giving slideshows. That was constant, I mean, it was constant, but I, I don't do that anymore. And, you know, I'm, 80 years old, and I've slowed down a little bit, Mark, you know. I'm not running quite as fast as I used to. <laughs> I hear you. But I like, you know, when I go to end up to fish on the Babine River, there's a sporting goods store in Smithers called Oscars. Ah. So I usually go into Oscars to buy some more flies, which I don't use, but don't need them, but I use them anyway. And Oscars lets me put on uh, a seminars. So they'll say, you know, like October 15th, join Lonnie Waller. I've got one. I'm looking at it right now on the larger wall of my office. Join Lonnie Waller tonight, you know, as he gives a talk about his adventures on the Babine River and all over the world. And I really like that. And I used to do that all over the U.S., but not anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you bring up Oscars. It came up on our last show as uh, a gentleman started uh, a magazine in the U- UK, and it's called Fly Culture Magazine. And uh, the only place that carries his magazine right now, I think, in North America is Oscars. Huh. It's a great store. They've got everything there. So are you, are you a sports guy, Lonnie? If you had to pick a favorite sports team, pro, college, or otherwise, is there anybody you follow loyally? Yeah, I used to fight. I was a rabid fan for the uh, San Francisco 49ers. I, I was nuts for them. And one night we were watching a 49ers game in the Bay Area at a friend's house, and the 49ers were just getting ready to win, and the, they threw a pass. It was Joe Montana threw a pass that was intercepted, and the other team ran it back for a touchdown. The gun went off, 
and the game was over. And I got so pissed off, I stood up and threw a chair into the fireplace. <laughs> that's, that's a fan. <laughs> well, my my guys, the, the guy who I was staying with, he was a good friend. He didn't care, but he said, "Well, one fire, one 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 chair in a fire is okay, but don't do it twice." I said, "Okay, I won't." <laughs> What's the biggest lesson? that you've learned on your fly fishing journey? If you had to kind of sit back and kind of just put it into one big lesson, let us know. What is it? Yes, and here's what I've learned. That mankind is an inseparable part of the natural order in the natural world. And despite politicians' best attempts or scientists or whoever that say, no, that's not true, they're wrong. I know better. We are a part of the natural order, absolutely inseparable from the world and nature. That's where we came from. And I think I wrote that in one of my books is that we, we still share the, um, that, that, that experience, that knowledge, that information. We are an inseparable part of Mm -hmm. mother nature. And if we don't learn pretty soon to do something about it, it's going to be too late. You know, I mean, the pollution and the, oh, it's just awful. So that's the lesson that I came away with, is that we're an inseparable part of nature, and we better take good care of it, or we're not yeah. going to be yeah. around. There's a, there's a biblical expression I, I'll never forget. In the end, the meek shall inherit the earth. And I think that's true. I think modern civilizations could can collapse the way they're polluting things, the way they're what they're doing to the natural environment, we will, we can disappear. That's not impossible. Our, our civilizations, our economies can collapse, and then the world will come, make, will inherit the earth. And I've seen some of those tribes in my travel, these people down in Brazil and Ecuador, these native cultures, they have no technology really to speak of, but they know the natural world. Mm. They know where the water is. They know where the food is. They know where the animals are. They know all of that stuff, and we don't. Lonnie, I think that's one real cool thing about fly fishing in general. It does, it it makes you feel that you are part of what's going on, and it bothers me to no end when we think we're not part of nature. It's like really, like you know, that hurricane's coming at you. You can't do a darn thing about it. That that bear's coming at you. Guess what? You're part of the food chain. I think we sometimes forget that. I agree. You're absolutely right. We do forget that. And that's, I think, one of the greatest issues today. You know, our civilizations, our technologies, they're taking us to a place where we don't remember who we are and where we came from. And I see it on the, on the news every night. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a, I have some clients who are involved with this. There's somewhere in, the, in Indonesia, somewhere in the ocean, there's a, there's a, a, a how can I say this, a plastic... Um, a mass of plastic floating on the surface of the, you know, plastic water bottles, plastic this, plastic that. Mm-hmm. The size of this floating uh, mass of plastic is as big as the state of Texas. Wow. Yeah. That's, you know, that's one thing that ever since uh, this COVID-19 thing started, I don't know about you, but I've noticed we've got a lot more wildlife. We've got a lot more birds coming back. There's a lot less um, just air pollution, a lot less air traffic, a lot less people driving. I just think it's almost been a, as, as bad as it's been. There's going to be some upside. I agree. There's, a, there's an upside to it because we're not. That's right. We are our um, industrial 
energies and efforts and processes have been interrupted and slowed down by this virus. And it's, you know, if we're smart, we'll take advantage of the lessons we're learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well put. Um, when, when I, fill in the blank for me, Lonnie. When I'm not fly fishing, I am usually doing what? Hmm, when I'm not fly fishing, what I'm usually doing. Well, uh, hmm, that's interesting. I, I have one hobby. I like to work with my hands. Mm-hmm. And for years and years, I built very, very fancy bows, you know, archery bows. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were really, uh, really very special. And I would make them and give them away to friends. And I got an email just the other day from one of these clients that said, Lonnie, I still have that bow and arrow set you gave to me, and I, and I got an elk with it. So those things make me happy, and uh, I don't shoot bows anymore. So now I've got a, my other hobby with working with my hands, where I make these bamboo hiking sticks. Mm-hmm. They're really fancy. They're wrapped up just like a fly rod. You know, they're, they're made out of thin bamboo, about a three-quarters of an inch in diameter. And we use them around San Miguel for walking on the streets because the streets down here are the shits. <laughs> they're, made out of, they're made out of slippery uh, stones, you know, and they've got curbs and stuff sticking out of the sides of buildings. People's, people are always falling down, you know, and hurting themselves. So I use these, I make these sticks and I give them away to friends. And they, they like I say, said they originated on the river for wading, their wading staff. But sure. down here, they turned into hiking sticks, and they're fabulous. <laughs> Good for you. That's, that's being creative. What's the best job you've ever had? The best job I ever had? Well, I would say it would be when, well, I like working for myself. And uh, when I got out of college, uh, I had a partner and we opened up a fly fishing store and I ran that fly fishing store for many, many years. And then it came time to, uh, I wanted to stop running the fly fishing shop. I was too busy flying all over the planet <laughs> fishing. <laughs> so I had a partner about famous fly fisherman named Andre Puyan. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not, no. but anyway, Andy Puyans was a famous fly tire. That guy, he could tie it. He was amazing. So he came over one day and he says, okay, I hear you're going to close the shop down. So here's what we'll do. Here's my deal. You can close the shop down. I'll come over with a fifth of scotch and we'll sit down and we'll divvy up. We'll divide up the inventory of your shop. You take half, I'll take half and we'll part happy. I said, okay, Andy, come on over. So he came over Sure enough, he had a big bottle of scotch or whatever it was, and there we sat in the middle of my fly fishing store with a big pile of reels in his front of his table, a big pile of reels in front of my table until we divided up the entire inventory. Then we smiled, shook hands, and I never saw him again. It was great. Hmm. Best fly fishing location that you have been, without giving away that secret spot, uh, where do you want to be? If somebody could put you on a river or still water or whatever that may be, where would it be? Well, there's several, there's several d- destinations that are a little bit different. My favorite, my favorite destination of all is 
Silver Hilton Lodge on the Babine. Okay, that's that's very that's number one. Then there's a second lodge I fish in Belize. It's called Turniff Island, and there we chase tarpon, bonefish, and permit. Mm. And I love that place. And I think those two places, you know, those are st- I'm still fishing them. You know, 40 years later, you know, I'm going. You know, I'm still going. So those two. I also I I love New Zealand. God, the trout fishing there. Mm. There's a trout stream in in New Zealand called the Rangitiki. Right. The rainbows average 12 pounds. Whoa. They look like big steelhead. <laughs> and we used dry flies for them, little royal coachman, and we were 14. And one day I was on the on the Rangitiki with the guide, and I said, Kenny, I said, look at this. I, I just saw these two big nine-pound rainbows lying next to a big black log. I said, these rainbows got to be 10 pounds. He said, Lonnie, look again. That's not a log. That's a 25-pound brown <laughs> trout, and no one's ever hooked them. I said, well, kiss my butt. I'm going back up there with that brown. So I went back where the brown was. My hands were shaking. I was so scared. I didn't even change the fly. So here I am casting a number 14 royal wolf to this 20-pound brown trout. He sees it. Boom, it lands on the water. I can see that big jaw, those big eyes look up, and here he comes. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Here comes the royal wolf, and at the last minute, he stops and drops back down, turns around, and swims right by me. And as he looks at me, I swear to God, he was saying, kiss my butt, buddy. <laughs> and he, I never saw him again. That's a great story. <laughs> Yeah, I know that. It's true. That really. feeling, though, when you get to any of the, even those coastal rivers and you just see like a giant salmon just kind of hanging there or even a large trout, it's hard to describe how your your blood pressure gets going and your anticipation. Everything goes out the window. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I think, the re- I think there's a reason why our heart starts pounding and we get really excited. Mankind, human beings especially the men, but I've known women too. We are still hunters at heart. And it's that chase that really, I wrote about this in a book. It's it's somehow, somehow it's not the capture of the fish. That's the most important. It's the hunt, the chase. I love that. You know, and if you get them, you get them. If you don't, you, you say, okay, I'll go find another one, but it's the chase or the hunt that I, that inspires me the, the, you know, and I've caught some big steelhead, 30-pounders. I've caught 100-pound tarpon, 110-pound tarpon, big bonefish. I've done all that, uh, but it's still those big steelhead, I think, and the size of the fish especially that excites me. You know, it's pretty hard to get excited over a three-pound bonefish. I mean, that's a nice fish, but, you know, they're not, you know, they're not, I like the monsters. Yeah, well, I get it. <laughs> If you had to pick a couple of people, Lonnie, that have been influential in your fly fishing journey, uh, thinking back a few years, who who would you look to as far as uh, mentors? Well, uh, you mean real people or books? Well, people who wrote uh, either books? Either or. I mean, whoever whoever really impact, impacted well, you. Okay, all right. One book that, that influenced me more than any other book I ever read was made by an angler, a famous angler named Joseph Brooks. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of him sure, or not, sure Joe have. Brooks. You bet. Okay, and there was a picture in one of his books where Brooks is holding up a sea-run brown trout 
that's like 20 pounds and it's got a popper and the bound 20 pound brown he's holding has got a popper in the side of its mouth. I went nuts for that. <laughs> Any anybody else that you've maybe spent time with on the water? If you if you look back in your fly fishing history, uh, well, I think uh, Bob Wickwire, the owner of Silver Hilton Steelhead Lodge, he really caught, taught me a lot about steelheading. I had a, a saltwater guide. Oh God, I had a there's a saltwater guide down in Belize called Winston Cabral. Mm-hmm. His nickname is Pops. And Pops was with me on the day I caught a 200-pound tarpon. He knew what Pops knew what he was doing. He taught me how to cast to and catch permit. I've got a lot of permit on a fly, and that is one of the hardest of all. Hmm. But Pops, I still see Pops. He's my age now. He's, his, he's well, he's maybe not as old as I am, but he's he's at least 65 or 70, and we're still pounding on it. You know, we're still there. <laughs> I love it. Have you got any, I always like to ask my guests, Lonnie, if there's any kind of stories from their time on the water that sticks with them, any kind of weird, wonderful, wacky stories. Uh, everyone's got them. Uh, anything that sticks in your mind as far as uh, something you'd like to share today? Well, there's been, you know, like I say, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I've had it all happen to me. You know, you fish as much as I have for as many years as you have. And you're going to have the good, the bad, and ugly. Uh, so I don't know, you know, the, the plane crash was obviously the bad and the ugly. But uh, there are other stories. I I remember one time I was down in Belize with the same guide, and he looked up and the sky was getting dark, and he said, I better go get the boat. He said, that's a hurricane coming. He says, and here's what you could do. And if you don't do this, you're gonna, I'm not when I come back, you're not going to be here. You're going to be dead. <laughs> when you see that hurricane coming towards you, you get back into the mangroves and you wrap around, you wrap your arms and legs around those mangrove roots and you'll be alive. If you don't, that, that tornado is going to come by and suck you up, you know, like a piece of cork. Hmm. So I'm going to get the boat and God damn it, you hang on to those mangrove roots and I'll be back as soon as I can. <laughs> and I tell you, I jumped in those mangrove. I, I had a hold of them with my mouth, both hands and arms, my legs. You couldn't tell me I looked like a mangrove. <laughs> but we but we made it. The, boat, the storm blew over and it was like, it was incredible. 80, 90 mile an hour winds. And we just hung on to the mangroves until it passed. And I thought, boy, oh boy, I don't want to do this again. Wow. So were you on your own hanging on there? Were you with somebody? Yeah, because he had to, yeah, Pops had to go get the boat. He said, you hang on to Mangrove Roots, I'll be right back. Because hmm. he had to go get the boat. See, we were walking, we were fishing on foot on the flat, see? So he had to go get the boat, get me in the boat, and then take off and get back to the camp before the hurricane hit. Wow. That's... We made it, but I tell you, the wind was howling, and I was hanging on to the boat and, and to my guide <laughs> with everything I had. You, you seem like... Um... I don't want to say stubborn, but there's not a lot of quit in you. No, I I was raised that way. You know that I I was raised um, to be to be strong, to be independent, and uh, mm. you know I, I I learned that from my parents. I think you know my dad would have been my dad had been 
in the U.S. Navy in, in uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. And his ship one night in the South Pacific was hit by a Japanese submarine. And my da- father's ship blew up. It exploded. And my dad spent the entire night hanging on to a piece of driftwood with one arm and his arm around the body of a shipmate. Yeah. So I got a lot of my stubborn resistance from my dad, hmm. you know. It amazes me how many stories you're sitting on. I don't even know where to go with you, Lonnie. There's so, there's so many things we can talk about. <laughs> oh, I love to talk. Don't worry. We'll have a couple of we'll have we'll have a little uh, scotch or whatever you like, and we'll talk all night long. I like it. So, you got to dial me in on this. It's kind of a philosophical question, but it's one I like to ask the guests on the podcast, and I always find it fascinating where this goes. If you take a look at fly fishing as we know it, is there anything in your mind that we can be doing differently or better or that maybe irks you a little bit? Uh, well, our, uh, this is a personal kind of thing, and uh, you know, people may agree or disagree with this, but I think the younger anglers don't seem to have it. They have a great, the young kids today are great technicians. I mean, God, they can tie flies. They can build rods. You know, they can do all of the practical stuff. But when I read the fly fisherman, fly fishing magazines, I don't sense, or I don't feel a lot of the magic there is out there on the water. Mm. In other words, they're, they're technicians and they're, those guys go for it. But somehow there seems to be something missing they i don't know if they love it or if they just really like to just just like to dominate see i don't i I want both i want to catch those fish and i let want to let them go oh here's the story i remember one day in the babine river this this is one of my favorite stories and it's true i cast my fly a wet fly out and uh, i couldn't see it. it was you know two or three feet underneath the surface, and my wet fly was swinging around that wet fly swing, and all of a sudden there's a tat-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat, you know, something was biting on it. Then all of a sudden, boom, a strong strike. And I didn't know what was going on. And I thought, God, what is this fish? So I kept fighting it for about 15 or 20 minutes, and I'll never forget this, Mark. I'll never forget it. I got this fish in. It was a female and she had fought like a tiger, and she only had one jaw lower. She had no upper jaw wow. at all, just a lower jaw. And I, my heart started pounding. I wrote about it in one of my books. Hmm. And I let that little girl go, and I thought, my God, how can anyone deny the power and the strength, the beauty and the magic of these fish? How can they ignore this? And that led me to the next phase. We've got to protect them. We've got to take care of them. So that that was a lesson for me too, you know, yeah. that the biggest fish aren't always the best. They come in all sizes and they're all important. They all val- they're all valuable and every single one of them matters. Hmm. That's really well put. We're chatting today yeah. with Lonnie Waller. Uh, Lonnie's written a, a lot of books and, and DVDs over the years. Steelheader's Way, um, River of Dreams. That one I know I'm looking at on the bookshelf right now, Lonnie. Um, yeah. Your resume is, is, is deep. Founding director of the Babine River Foundation and the North Coast Steelhead Alliance. Steelhead obviously is 
where a lot of your passion comes from. But I mean, it seems to me that, you know, the, the amount of places you've fished and the, and, and the countries you've been to kind of impacts your, your soul everywhere you go. I think it does. And that's one of the beautiful things about our sport. It's give and take. If we give something to the natural world and to the outdoors, our rivers and landscapes, if we give something to them in the form of protecting them and taking care of them, we're repaid a thousand fold over because if we lose the gift of mother nature and outdoors and our rivers and forests or trees and our animals, if we lose that, we've lost ourselves. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to ask you to put your artist hat on. I want you to paint us a picture. So paint our listeners a picture. I want you to describe, Lonnie, your perfect day. Kind of walk us through that. What What are you chasing? Where are you fishing? Um, <laughs> okay. Put your well, artist hat. Perfect day. Okay. The perfect. There's There's more than one perfect day, but the most perfect of the perfect would be: I wake up in the morning, get a hot cup of coffee, a hot breakfast, I jump in the boat with the guide. And we go out onto the Babine River, where the steelhead average used to average 20 pounds. Okay, and there I am, and all of a sudden the fly, and this happened to me one time, I throw my fly out into this pool called Canadian, and the fly's coming around on the wet fly swing, and all of a sudden it stops. I think, shit, pardon my, I hope your, your listeners don't matter shit now and then i say shit i looked on that frigging log and i start pulling on it and i'm pulling on it and i'm pulling on it and it won't move so i thought okay i'm gonna just break the i'm gonna break the damn thing off the hell with the silver hill and fly i got another one so i started to pull my line back up to me you know through the eyes of a fly rod and all of a sudden i feel uh, something that yields and i'm not snagged on the tree at all so i pull again and i keep then I start winding in my line on the reel as this thing all of a sudden, whatever it is, breaks loose and comes swimming right at me. And it comes up to the surface to roll in the surface of the river. And it's a steelhead at least 35, maybe 40 pounds. Wow. It was as long as my leg. And I thought, oh, my God. And then the line breaks. <laughs> <laughs> and the only I still see that fish, but only in my dreams. <laughs> but you know, sometimes a perfect day isn't perfect, but you're going to remember that for a lifetime. Oh yeah, I'll never forget. Yeah, huh. you know, I've got some big steelhead. I got a couple of, you know, thirty pounders hanging up on the wall at Silver Hill. But this fish, it was a world record. You know, I, that fish had to be forty some odd pounds, and so I lost it. I don't care. You know, it was like, here we go again. There was that connection with the power of that fish and the natural world. Mm. I could feel that in my toes and it rang all the way up through my whole body to be connected to that. See, that's the key word for me is to be connected to the natural world is the opportunity to grow from it and to gain strength from it. Hmm. You know, I, I'm really grateful just that we're chatting tonight and the fact that I I, I interviewed uh, Dave Lisi out of Alaska. He's at uh, Cooper Landing, and he said, he he told me how much impact your books have had in his life. And he said, mm-hmm. I can't, I, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically said, if you want to know anything about steelheading, if you want to hear somebody truly write from a passionate perspective, 
you got to talk to Lonnie Waller. And uh, I just shot you an email out of the blue, and you're like, let's do it. And uh, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate it too, and and I you just tell all your your listeners out there that they're doing a good thing when they go out on the rivers, you know, and help preserve our natural resources, respect them, and they will be rewarded a hundred times over. Become a part. In other words, the hunter must become a part of the hunted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I yeah, I believe that. You know, we share. We we can share that energy. We can share that power and that strength and i think in the world we live in today that's a damn good thing mm-hmm. lonnie how's the fishing in san miguel is it any good near where you're at no there's a no i went there's some there's some bass fishing around but i only did that a couple of times and, and i was i used to fish for black largemouth bass but i never got i never got hooked on it like i did the trout and steelhead mm-hmm. you know I went a couple times, I went one time to Russia and chased Atlantic salmon. And I remember the guys down there really gave me a bunch of SHIT. They said, why? You're not fishing for steelhead now. These are salmon. Slow your damn fly down, (laughs) mend the line, and don't be so damn hurry to hook one. They'll get them. You'll get them. So I learned too. You know, nobody's perfect. We're all learning. And that's one of the beautiful things about our sport. We're in this together. You know, and that's so true. You never know it all. I mean, no, no one fly fisher uh, knows everything. And that, that any any kind of pastime that you can find that you're always continually finding something out new. It, it fascinates me to no end. I agree. I agree. Now I know other sports. You know, sometimes on the, on the TV down here, we we watch we watch the news a lot because of what's going on politically and, and uh, in terms of the virus and all that thing. And there's a there's a some commercial about golf, so I watch these golfers and they're out there standing there giving you instructions on how to swing the club and maximize your putts and your drives, and I think to myself, well, that's I respect that. <laughs> Golfing is a good thing, mm. but it ain't fishing and it never will be. <laughs> and I guess that's just who I am. I'm prejudiced and to a to a fault. I tell everybody I'm prejudiced to a fault. Fishing is the best. Golf can go to hell. Sailboats can go to hell. Horse racing can go to hell. If you really want to know what's going on and know who you are as a living human soul, go fishing. Yeah. Well, I don't think I can put it any better than that. Can you, if, if someone's looking for your books um, on Steelhead specifically, um, are, are they readily available through Amazon or where's the best place to find them? A local fly shop? Well, yeah, I think that uh, there's a, I wrote two issues of, uh, hang on a second. I got the book here in my, in my, uh, bookcase. I got, um, well, there's river of dreams. Mm. Okay. And, uh, that book really got my attention. I I read that a long time ago. Yeah. So, yeah, I wrote, and that has first and second editions. Um, and then I have, or I, to, I mentioned River Dreams, and I've got a, a CD here where I talk to the reader. Instead of them reading the book, I talk to them, you know, and I, and I share the chapters and the information of the book on, a, on, a, on an audio tape. Mm-hmm. 
Do you? Do you know me. I, I don't worry, don't worry about me talking. <laughs> well, no, I, I know, I know you're not a big, uh, a big computer guy. But I'm curious. Do you have any social media out there that people can follow you? I thought I saw something on Instagram. You know, I don't do social media. I used to do, um, I used to do Facebook. Right. And this is a sad story. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't tell this, but well, it's not really ugly. No, go ahead. But uh, on Facebook, one time I was fishing with a guide, and I'm not going to mention any names. And we were fishing together on the Babine River, and he was I mean, he was the guide, so I was the client. I was fishing first, but I wanted the kid to fish too. I said, "So come on, you get behind me, and you know, you know, maybe you'll get one too. I don't catch everything, you know." So I fished through the bucket, and sure enough, I don't get a, I don't get a bite, a nibble, or nothing. He comes back behind me, boom, he hooks up. And I thought he was going to have a bowel movement in his pants. <laughs> he was so happy. He said, I tell you what, Lonnie Waller, you're nothing. You're not what you say you are. I caught this fish, and you didn't. What? I'll never forget that. That's yeah, weird. I'll never forget that. That's... That was many, many years ago, and I'm sure the young man has, has learned a lot more since then. But that was really tough, you know, to... Uh, to have somebody say that—that's bizarre. That's bizarre. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, you know, it takes all types, and I—I I, I get the social yeah. media thing, and actually, that's something that comes up on the podcast quite a bit. Is you know, it's yeah, people can do homework very quickly to find out secret spots and 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 where where those yeah. fish are coming uh-huh. from. But uh, I, I know myself, you got to stay a little bit tight-lipped. You may mention a river, but it doesn't have to mention the actual spot. Right. Well, you see, that was always a dilemma for me, too, as a, a stick with two fork, if it was a forked stick. On the one hand, I wanted to protect these watersheds and these rivers and take good care of them. And yet I had to promote them mm-hmm. and advertise them because I was in the business of fly fishing travel. Right. You see, so I had two, two issues I had to deal with. And that was always, it still is somewhat difficult for me. Uh, but I, I don't do as much of that. Most of the great watersheds now in the world, this younger generation of anglers, these kids are great anglers, and they already know that stuff anyway. But in my days earlier, they didn't, you know, there was there was really a, a how shall I say it, a leading force of anglers who were out there experimenting, learning new things. Mm-hmm. You know, I was one of the first Americans ever rush, ever offered to fish Russia and I can't, it was Gorbachev who opened up the Russia and they, Gorbachev sent me one of his, he didn't send it, but one of his deputies did about some Atlantic salmon fishing they had in Northern Russia. And would I like to come see it? And I said, you bet your butt I would. <laughs> so I went to the, the Akola Peninsula with the guides. And I don't know if I've mentioned this before or not, but they said, Waller, we know about your steelhead fishing. You're you're pretty good steelhead fishing, but you're you're not much as an Atlantic salmon fishing. You're not mending your line enough. God damn it! Start mending your line and slow the fly down, and you'll start catching something. 
and they were right. <laughs> but that's, and that's, you talk about the kind of the learning curve with fly fishing. Just because you know how to fish for steelhead amazingly doesn't mean you're going to be real successful right away with largemouth bass or permit. That's or, right. It's a different game. That's right. Yeah. No, and we all, we all kind of have our comfort zones. I always feel like we know our home waters inside and out. Mm-hmm. But you stick me on a, you know, a chalk stream in England or a spring creek in Montana, I, I'd, it'd be a steep learning curve. Oh yeah, yeah. I once, I once heard, I once heard that from a guide who watched me fish, and I'll, I'll soft this up. He said, Waller. He said you can't, you couldn't catch a fish if there was, if there was a hundred fish there. You're no effing good. Slow down, Waller. Take it easy. This is not a four or five. This is not a four alarm fire. <laughs> so start mending, buddy. <laughs> so I did, and I started catching things. So you know, you don't always get it figured out. Somebody has to help you. They have to teach you, and that's one of the great things about our sport is that we can share information with one another in a world that's getting more complicated, more chaotic, and more difficult. But we can share things with each other. And in the process, we both benefit. I totally understand what you were talking about a moment ago with the double-edged sword. Like you're trying, at one hand, you want to protect the, you know, the resource. But on another, you want to bring people to the resource. Because the more people that are invested in the resource, the more likely they are to invest in, in protecting it. Exactly. That's exactly what, in the end, the anglers are the best friends the fish have. Yeah, I think a, a lot of environmental groups miss that. I really do. Like, um, I think they do too. Because hunters, yeah. uh, people, I'd say most people that hunt and most people that fish, fly fish specifically, they're vested in that resource and they don't want it to go away. Otherwise, we have nothing. That's right. Yeah. That's right. We won't. It'll all be gone. Yeah. No, it's uh, it definitely. I think the more people that come to the water, the better shape. And I know fly fishing's in a great, great spot. And and I'm I'm super grateful you took the time tonight, Lonnie, to uh, to chat with us. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and I uh, consider it an honor. And you tell your listeners that I send my best regards to all of them, and to fish well, fish with truth, fish with energy, fish with strength, and courage. And you're going to be just fine. You're going to learn a lot and you'll grow up. You'll grow in the process in a way that I believe you can't grow any other way. The outdoors has a lot to teach us. Open your eyes and your ears, pay attention and watch what happens. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.